Julie, big day for your Doctor Friends podcast. Today we go global. Huh? <laughs> it's it's In, international. I mean, we actually, yeah, we we do actually have some international listeners, but. You know, let 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 the uh, listeners in on a little secret on where you're recording from today. I'm in Mexico. I never go on vacation because I'm scared of it, and I finally am trying to do hard things, which is funny because doing hard things just means having a lovely vacation with my husband. I always think it's cool when I listen to podcasts and somebody's like, "Yeah, I'm in Spain, and we're doing the podcast," and I was like, "Hey, that's us today." <laughs> Julie's in Mexico. Hopefully. I'm still here in Chicago. Yeah, well, except it's 60 degrees in Chicago today. It was 60 degrees today, and I will tell you, uh, if you looked outside and looked at everybody who was walking around, you would think we were in Mexico. It was everybody was like, "I'm wearing shorts. It's 55." That's awesome. The, the tank tops are coming out. I love it. Yep. Yeah. Even even Adam's in a tank top today here in in beautiful Isla Mujeres. It's great here. Oh. Well, we're all we're all jealous of that. Oh, so the your doctor friends are going to do a little experiment today. Uh, there was a, a big release about a month ago. Um, it, we did not get to ring the bell at the stock market for this uh, re- release, but the inaugural Pulse Check newsletter yes. went out last month. And for those of you who didn't get it, it's, it's because you're not on our email list. So fix that right now. Yeah, go, go to your doctorfriendspodcast.com. There's a very simple sign up for the email list. You will get a confirmation that you signed up, mm-hmm. and then you will get an alert every time that we have a new episode. But otherwise, the only other thing coming to your inbox is our monthly pulse check, where yeah. we tell you what's going on in the news world and a little bit of you know some color about what you know two real certified doctors with opinions think about it. <laughs> we and have so, opinions, yes, yeah, we have opinions and certifications. It's good. <laughs> the uh, uh, today we're going to try to take pulse check and we're going to put it into audio form. So we're going to go through some of the biggest stories from February. And uh, give a little color to it. How's that sound to you? That sounds fantastico. But, oh my gosh, I'm getting Spanish. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see everybody on the other side of the intro. Welcome to Your Doctor Friends, the show that teaches you to sniff out the garbage and answers all the questions that you wish you could call or text your doctor friend. My name's Julie Bruni. And I'm Jeremy Allen, and we are two physicians who work at a nationally ranked practice and take care of some of the world's greatest athletes. We know that you have questions, and we want to help. We want to be your doctor friends. All right, we're back. Julie's got beautiful weather outside her window. The sun's going down in Chicago, and it probably is supposed to snow, I think, on Wednesday. So we're going to um, just forget about that for a second. So I want to start with what I think is probably the biggest story of the month. On February 16th, the Alabama Supreme Court ruled that embryos created and stored in a med- uh, medical facility must be considered children under the state's law governing uh, harmful death. The ruling, um, which I think everybody probably has heard of by now, um, is actually somewhat narrow. It it applies to three couples who had sued the Center for Reproductive Medicine, which is a fertility clinic in Mobile, Alabama, for inadvertently destroying their embryos. And so the plaintiffs were arguing that they were entitled to punitive damages. So this is almost more of like a civil case yeah. uh, under Alabama's 1872 Wrongful Death of a Minor Act. Um, two lower courts disagreed, saying the embryos were neither people nor children, and then the state Supreme Court reversed those rulings, saying that the embryos fell squarely under Alabama's definition of minors and that the negligence lawsuits could proceed. So I guess actually in that case it's not um, civil. But either way, the case is going to go back to the state district court for further litigation, and frankly I think it led to a lot of confusion. Um, There's been obviously a lot of headlines on this. Mm -hmm. Ultimately it was another bomb in the reproductive rights world, and the immediate ramifications were that um, IVF clinics, most notably University of Alabama and Birmingham, paused their treatments while they were trying to figure out how that affected them, the fear being that clinics, doctors, or maybe even patients could face litigation. So, Julie, what were your reactions when you heard about this? Um, my first reaction was that I just wanted to understand the story a little bit more. So I, you know, did what I usually do and just try to find multiple sources and of, of uh, media that I trust um, and just try to get a better understanding. I think you explained it quite well, but this, you know, certainly is a precedent and it's very tricky. And um, I'm sure it can be very scary for people that uh, live in that state and have um, reproductive needs that are, are uh, may not may not be able to be met. Yeah, I think what you just said there is interesting because I, I felt the same way. I heard the announcement. There was all the, you know, 
swell of of emotion that comes around it for obvious reasons mm-hmm. but i wanted to get below that swell of emotion and understand really what 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 did this really say mm-hmm. um and as i mentioned it's a pretty narrow ruling i think most of this is concerned about like what doors it opens in the future and then certainly if you have ivf clinics that are kind of pausing treatments that affects people right. on a daily basis because the ivf clinic has no idea how it's going to be affected and certainly doesn't want to put people at risk but you know it seems like from at least this one case, it's not necessarily opening up Pandora's box yet. I think the concern is that it's going to open up Pandora's box in the future. I want to put a little context here on kind of like what what they're really saying. And so freezing embryos itself is a widespread practice. This is not putting an embryo in a woman. This is freezing the embryos and then the embryos that are frozen being harmed in some form or fashion. And so therefore those frozen embryos in test tubes are human beings. They're, they're people per this potential ruling. Mm. And so during a standard cycle of in vitro fertilization, a woman takes hormones to maximize production of eggs. And then a doctor retrieves as many eggs as possible and then injects them with sperm in the clinic's lab. And then you're trying to create viable embryos for implantation. And then, you know, obviously I think most people are aware they make numerous embryos here. Mm -hmm. And the risk is, is that if you implant a bunch of them, you could lead to multiple. So I think early on, I don't know if it would be called a complication, but many people doing IVF would have you know, twins or triplets or something. That's when you'd hear about like the seven babies that people would have. And so, you know, protocols now urge doctors to implant only one embryo at a time, but success with implantation is hardly guaranteed, right? When somebody gets implantation of a single embryo, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to be pregnant and have a successful baby. Mm -hmm. And so doctors will typically freeze remaining embryos for subsequent attempts because if it doesn't work, you don't want the woman to have to go through all of the hormones and production of eggs and do all that stuff all over again. One, that's a hard process. Um, And it's also really, really expensive to do that Mm -hmm. process. So they freeze these embryos so that if the first one doesn't take, then they can try again. But if the law prevents you from freezing embryos or if these companies say or these clinics say we can't do that, they'll have to maybe go through that. And there was a quote in the New York Times article saying that this will obviously disproportionately affect lower income people, people that don't have as much access to uh, IVF care. Um, And then certainly from there, maybe people of color or LGBT communities or, and so on and so forth. So the last thing before I give some more uh, reaction from you is, uh, you know, IVF, I think is a miracle for many people. I don't have any data on, you know, where we politically stand on in vitro fertilization. I never really thought of it as being controversial in terms of most people I think are pretty, I mean, there's so many, I'm, I think that, I saw a stat that about 1% of babies or so, which I think is like 4 million a year or something like that, mm. are from IVF. And think about how many people that is. And if we make ways that makes this practice less accessible, then we're not allowing it. It's like we people can't have babies, and that's sad. Yeah. Well, the accessibility part of it is scary to me, and then the unpredictability part of it as well. I mean, this is already an extremely unpredictable process for people that are trying to conceive and get pregnant. And then... To throw this monkey wrench in just makes that even more upends that whole that whole process, and that's I don't know that's got to be scary to be stuck in that degree of limbo. I mean, just the folks in my personal life that I've interacted with that have gone through IVF process or any type of fertility um, processes, their lives are just so upended. Like everything they do hinges on their next, you know scan or hormone levels or just constantly having to do all these things to your to yourself that are um scary and unpredictable and then to throw this in to say like well you know even this this practice that we've sort of figured out that we can help you create life if you want it um to be like well right now mm, i don't know now the courts have to play around with some stuff for a while so again for these poor folks that really want to have children it's just I don't know. It's upsetting and sad. I just have empathy for that process being already very unpredictable and scary. And it seems like it's even more so right this second for folks in Alabama and in other places, too. Yeah, I think you and I both sit along the line of like, this is this is madness and and shouldn't be handled like this. Um, But I certainly think no matter where you're along about the spectrum, we want people to have access to good medical care and anything that's scaring clinics that are providing good care or scaring providers that can provide good care or frankly scaring patients to even access care because of consequences from a a legal situation is is always 
disheartening to two to two doctors who believe in in the opposite. So, all right, let's go on to story two. I'm gonna I'm gonna bring up one more here. Um, we talked about measles in our uh, a mm-hmm. recent episode in our dessert episode and how there had been some measles outbreaks. Um, I would encourage you to listen to that dessert episode. I actually don't remember what episode it was. Do you remember what episode it was? <laughs> no, yeah. we can look back and figure it out. Shit, who hosts this thing? Um, but anyway, it's the end of an episode and we, we go through measles, but so Florida has a measles outbreak right now. Um, and we discussed these, um, before, but I wanted to highlight this story because the Surgeon General of Florida sent out guidance that flies in the face of safe health practices. So this is an article from Washington Post, but everybody reported on this in this letter. The Surgeon General of Florida said that parents and guardians can make the decision to send unvaccinated children to school during the outbreak. This is wrong. It is standard practice that once an outbreak has been identified, unvaccinated individuals should remain home for 21 days to ensure no infection. Uh, That is the incubation period. His letter also did not encourage vaccination, which, as we mentioned in our episode, is over 90% effective at protection even after the first dose. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, this seems awful, Julie, thoughts? Yeah, it's stupid. (laughs) I feel like, how can you be the Surgeon General of that? area and not it was it florida sorry you said yes yeah great um i don't know i think it's uh, a poor choice of words and uh i think when you hold that role it's very important that you choose your words wisely and you make sound recommendations based on data and evidence and science and yeah i mean i think the, the big thing that came up when we had that dessert um episode about measles and people getting their mmr vaccine is like this is the most contagious virus i think there is that exists so the the fact that florida's uh surgeon general was is saying like that's fine just let him go back it's no big deal like it's a huge deal it's a huge deal it's the most infectious virus that we know of or at least that i'm aware of you know that we've come close to eradicating until now and it will it's not helping to eradicate it more by making statements like this. Well, and it's not a cold. We established before that one <laughs> right. in five people are, can be are hospitalized with measles and, you know, one in 10 percent have chances of long term complications. It's not a cold. No. You know, I, I think we are a country that believes in freedom. Therefore, we get on these high horses of I should have the freedom to do what I want. Sure. Public health doesn't work with like you having the freedom to do whatever you want. And that includes your own health and then everybody else's health. And the reason you have measles outbreaks in schools is because people are getting too much freedom with public health. So we need to do what it takes to protect people from illness. We need to do what it takes to protect individuals from having long-term complications. And we need to stop outbreaks by doing the right thing. And so ultimately, I think you and I both stand on the get the vaccination, the very safe vaccination. One shot, 90% effective. If your school, if your kid is unvaccinated, first of all, get them vaccinated. But right. even if they were unvaccinated at a school that has an outbreak, you bring your kid in to get them vaccinated. Now they're protected. Right. They're protected. The end. Like you, the end. So I wanted to follow up on the on the measles outbreak and uh, put elevated voices like the Jerry Seinfeld elevated voice. Me trying to yell. I thought it was a perfectly level voice. Yeah. Well, we'll see what the <laughs> we'll see what the post editing says to, to that. Certainly. Julie, what story do you want to share with us today? I feel like you have some big old heavy hitters back from Chicago and me in Mexico. I've got some fluffier pieces. Yeah, you're seeing more sunlight than me, although I I did have warm weather today. I made these when it was cold and nasty. Okay. We had snow three days ago and it's now 60 (laughs) degrees. It's fine. I think it's nice to have a little back and forth between the heavy stuff and the the fluffier stuff. But uh, I I would love to talk about how uh, Kim Kardashian's back. Oh, she's back on our podcast. With more less than sound medical advice, if you'd love to hear it, I would. I would love to hear that. I I, I know that she's been. She has a reputation for giving sound medical advice. So <laughs> this surprises me that there's some negative. You know, she's got some not sound. Please tell me. Sometimes I feel like maybe her medical advice is better than the Surgeon General of Florida's, though. So <laughs> you let's know see. what? You're not wrong. <laughs> her medical advice here is probably uh, less not, harmful. A little bit less harmful. I mean, last time we talked about her. Um, uh, you know, hashtag not an ad for the Prenuvo full body MRI scan, which I think is fine for people that have unlimited resources to be able to follow up all the results of those scans, but um, maybe not for the average 
uh, the average average folk that uh, are yeah, it's about expensive, their and you can find some things, but it's not going to kill you from being a virus that is spreading around. Correct, so exactly. I guess the relative aspect of it. Yes. All right. What's Kim K doing? <laughs> well, these Kim's days? back in the news. I'm not aware of it. Yeah, Kim's back in the news, and this is kind of benign, but I thought it was interesting and funny, and it was bumbling around TikTok. Um, so this was in like end of January's. Uh, Kim Kardashian took advantage of the, of course, social media trend. We kind of talked about that briefly when with Matt Tyler about the palliative care nurses. They're like, of course, we're palliative or we're hospice nurses. We'll let you have, you know, whiskey for breakfast if you want. You're dying. Who cares? You know, it's kind of cute. I don't know if you've seen the trend or not. But um, basically, she did this, of course, um, social media trend and took uh, TikTok viewers on a view of her office. Um, she made a point to stop and showcase a bunch of stuff, you know, that she's got hanging up there, you know, like all of her, uh, when she was on the cover of Vogue a million times, that kind of stuff. But she also showcased her tanning booth as well as her red light booth. And quoth Kim, quote, I have psoriasis and it really helps when it's bad, but I don't use it too often, end quote. So this sparked controversy, particularly from fellow psoriasis sufferers. And in response, the National Psoriasis Foundation posted a fact-checking article, and they highlighted that they discouraged the therapeutic use of tanning beds, stating that this foundation, quote, uh, does not support the use of indoor tanning beds as a substitute for phototherapy performed with a prescription and under a health care provider supervision, end quote. Um, the article featured Joel Gelfand, who's a um, MD. He's professor of dermatology and epidemiology um, at the University of Pennsylvania, who explained that photo and light therapy can be an effective tool for the management of psoriasis, but this is done with a very specific UVB wavelength, specifically wave 311 for all of our alternative listeners. One of the better the waves, 90s. also a good yeah, 90s band. All <laughs> and that tanning beds mainly utilize UVA, which is harmful and damaging to skin and increases your risk for skin cancer. So again, I don't think that Kim was thinking very much about this. Um, but also when you are a gigantic social media influencer and you're making statements about people's health concerns, perhaps you should take those things um, seriously. So don't go into tanning yeah, beds if you have psoriasis. It doesn't help you. Well, it may help your psoriasis, but it can also give you skin cancer is what it sounds like. Because it sounds like you'll get the UVB. It's probably in there, right? It's, yeah, but so amidst it actually... a bunch of other harmful stuff, it's like if you took Correct. a vitamin in a pile of shit. That's gross. The But yes, yeah, I, exactly. So... She's not wrong. It probably does make her psoriasis better, but she also Never. is harming herself. And um, I think it's, it's it's one of those situations to me. It's like, you know, just enough to be like be dangerous. It seems like she was yeah. given enough information to like be like, oh, phototherapy is good for my psoriasis. So I'm going to get a tanning bed because I have all the resources in the world. And who knows if that tanning bed was given to her or not. But either way, yeah, she gets this tanning bed and then uses it for psoriasis. And then just harmlessly, she thinks, shows people the tanning bed and said, oh, yeah, I use it for my psoriasis. And then everybody looks it up and you say, oh, yeah, phototherapy helps for psoriasis. And then they're like, I'm going to go use tanning beds. And it's like it's missing all the stuff that you just did. Right, right. The reason why only college kids are the ones that get in tanning beds these days is because it's bad for you. <laughs> I know, I know. It's very bad for it's you. Very bad for you. It is causing skin cancer. Did you go into tanning beds when you were in college? I definitely yes, of course ended I did. Up in a tanning... I'm like yeah. a like an idiot. I know. And now I'm yeah. now again. Remember when we talked about how my face is turning into an old leather gloves, and I yeah. need my uh, what was the company that made the red light and blue light face thing? Oh, the Therabody the thera face, face yeah, whatever. The, the fair face mask, yeah. You need that. Yeah, I always remember leaving the tanning bed and smelling. I feel like my skin smelled like Malibu for whatever reason. And, I was like, how do these like, lights make me smell like rum? Crispy too, and also yeah. That now all my biopsies I have to get for everything because I was oh, a yeah, ding dong. I get, I get biopsies every three months, so I don't know if it was the tanning beds or genetics, but either Probably way, a little bit of both. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's a good story because I do think yeah. that um, um, you shouldn't be. The first thing I thought when you were talking about it, Julie, was what's the difference between phototherapy and the tanning bed? And you did a great job of explaining that succinctly, is that the phototherapy actually takes out the thing that you need for your psoriasis right. without giving you harmful stuff. Yes. And the tanning bed does not do that. Certainly. Um, well, so, thanks. Yeah. Thanks, but, Dr. Gelfand, for telling me that in this article. And we'll post all these right. articles and everything. In it does It does um, point out, though, that psoriasis does get better. Like a lot of times people do better when they live in warm climates or mm -hmm. they're around sunlight because it does actually make it better. But again, you got to wear sunscreen. So you right. get rid of the, the bad stuff. So totally. cool story. 
Much more upbeat than my other two stories. Holy shit. And I think it just comes down to like, if you are an influencer, do not forget that you have influence over people. So maybe check yourself. Yeah. I'm having a really hard time with the word influencer these days. I I don't know if I told you I'm, I'm going on a social media like hiatus. I, 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 it, it, it's bothering me much to see all the wellness stuff because it, you know, you and I do this podcast and so Mm -hmm. we follow all these wellness and health people because it helps us keep a pulse on what everybody's talking about. And I have found that it's bad for my health, yeah. um, at least in in the short term. So I'm 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 going off to so you're doing, stay away you're doing from a everything. cleanse. You're doing a social media doing, cleanse. Yes, a wellness yes, cleanse. Doing, a cleansing yourself I'm, of wellness. I'm information. Doing the, yeah. I'm doing the water fast, but iPhone edition. Oh, that's where very I'm smart. Only not. I, I moved all my social media apps to like a hidden screen, so I can't get to them. Um, How smart and of it's you. Been, and it's been two days, and I have only felt the urge to look a couple times, and it was pretty easy to stop, but we'll see. When I go through florid withdrawal, you can help me. We'll send you dank memes. <laughs> um, do you want me to keep going with my next story, or did you want to interject? Uh, well, m- mine's kind of, why don't I bring a heavy one back, okay. and then you can, I, I think you mentioned that maybe your other ones are, sure. uh, your other one's a little lighter too. So um, the... Next one I wanted to bring up was about um, well, anybody who listens to the daily podcast may recognize this story. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been some talk about tongue ties, um, you know, babies with tongue ties uh, getting these laser surgeries from dentists um, and it leading to complications. In fact, the story was broken by New York Times and other mm-hmm. publications in December. So it's not a new story. But the new update here is that the national body that certifies lactation consultants is investigating whether a consultant in Boise, Idaho has been inappropriately pushing an unproven procedure, which is this laser thing on new mothers struggling to breastfeed. So the news here is that they're investigating the consultant. Mm. And the thing that I wanted to highlight is the concept of who, how you, like, what is a lactation consultant? Like, what defines that? Um, Because I thought that that was an interesting facet. So the basic concept here, again, is that mothers and babies struggling to breastfeed are told that their babies are having a problem with tissue that's too tight under their tongue. And then actually occasionally are you being told that they have too tight of tissue around their cheeks and their gums. And then they're referred to a dentist who performs this laser treatment to, quote, fix the tie. The problem is, well, there's lots of problems, but the main problem is, is that there's little evidence that the surgeries actually help breastfeeding. So they're being referred for something that hasn't been proven, um, but it certainly pays the dentist well. The certification and regulation of lactation consultants has come under fire. And according to the New York Times story, only three states license lactation consultants, which I thought was crazy. Um, They face little oversight compared to other medical professionals like nurses, doctors, and dentists. A professional body, the International Board of Lactation Consultant Examiners, issues credentials to about 19,000 lactation consultants in the United States. So that's like not very many, right? 19,000 across the whole U.S. Mm -mm. Um, The board's guidance says that consultants should not diagnose tongue ties or other oral ties. So... In babies, so if you are one of the 19,000 that's certified here, you're being told by your board that you should not be the one diagnosing these. And then one of the things that I thought stood out also in the article was that since 2002, according to this board's website, it has only revoked the certification of three lactation consultants, which is crazy. It means yeah. that like what you have to, there has to be more people that are doing things that are not above board. I didn't look into what the board is what it takes to be licensed here. But but ultimately speaking, it seems like lactation consult to be a lactation consultant does not seem like it has much oversight. Um and certainly maybe not a lot of high bar to even become one. So what are your what are your initial reactions to that? Yeah, I mean I think it's there's always concerns about scope of practice and I think particularly in that um that episode of the Daily, I mean there was a lot of emotion tied in with that particular story, I mean, I recommend that people listen to it. Um, and I, I do think that lactation consultants provide, in general, uh, an extremely valuable um, resource. Uh, and it, But particularly in folks that are scared and vulnerable and um, are in a very tumultuous time of their lives. And I think you it's important to be able to have trust in um, in their training and in their recommendations. Um, and I think it was smart of the times to, to run this story. Um, and I just, I like that the shining of light on this situation of, you know, kind of saying things that are out of pocket and that are out of your realm of expertise that can be very harmful. 
Um, and I think that that should have consequences no matter what your occupation is, whether you're a physician or a lactation consultant or a mechanic or someone that makes sure the water is clean. Like, like this is why oversight matters. I think that, you know, talking about individual freedoms, like we've talked about, yes. you know, it matters, but it's also that, uh, that your, your actions have consequences and we need to make sure that they're in line with evidence-based practice and are not harmful. So I don't know yeah. if lactation consultants are, it's necessary to take the same Hippocratic oath as many other healthcare professionals do, but maybe they should. Well, it seems like they need a lot more oversight. I mean, you need oversight in these things, especially sure. in healthcare where you're affecting people's health and if they're giving medical recommendations. Um, I mean, there's oversight in tech all the time is what we talk about right now, right? And, mm -hmm. and without it, people do what they what they want. And it. I have my own personal experience with lactation consultant and early on in my first child's um, life, she had a hard time um, breastfeeding um, because she would it wasn't a, like a latch problem. It was, she would be really uncomfortable right away with the feed. Mm. Um, and our lactation consultant, um, was included under our insurance. So we were like, let's go meet with one and just kind of, yeah. you know, we, we weren't in a situation where our child was not being fed at all or not latching. And so didn't have like weight issues, but it was like, we have access and we're going to go learn. Sure. And the women seem nice. And I have my own, you know, like threshold of medical knowledge. Um, so, I come at it from a different perspective, but she was very adamant that like it was not a medical problem with with our child, that it was it was because of a really, really fast letdown. Basically, my wife was super soakering our, our <laughs> child's back back of her mouth and therefore she was really uncomfortable. And so she was, you know, early on in like three weeks of age, our, our daughter was it was recommended that we give our daughter um, like Zantac for or I think that was pulled. But either way, the, the antacid for. Sure. Actually, I think it was Zantac before it was pulled. So that's its own other episode. But either way, we uh, we had to, we were recommended to give Zantac for reflux, mm -hmm. and and we were told very explicitly by our lactation consultant, like, don't do that. She doesn't need medicine. Um, and I remember feeling as a medical provider, like, yeah, three weeks is a little early for medicine. I'm a little <laughs> like uncomfortable about that. And sure. also, like, it's my child. Like, I don't know who to listen to. Even though my pediatrician is definitely where most of my trust trust lives, mm -hmm. but like. This lactation consultant seems to know a lot about breastfeeding and has seen a lot of babies, mm -hmm. so maybe they know what they're talking about. And I will tell you, for three weeks, we didn't give Zantac because I was like, let's try, and mm -hmm. it didn't get any better. She didn't sleep for more than like 45 minutes at a time. And then we gave her Zantac at the six-week mark because we were going to go in for a doctor's appointment. And I said to my wife, the worst thing as a provider is when somebody comes in and says, I didn't do what you said, and it's not getting better. And you're <laughs> like... Okay, well, you're, you need to do what I said to, to see. So I was it's like, not we the need worst to at least thing, but it's one of the things that is irksome. Yeah. And so I said, we need to try it. And we gave her Zantac. Sure. And the next day she slept and breastfed perfectly. Mm. One day later. And you're like, again, is what my lactation consultant told me to do malpractice? Is it like, what, did it really harm my child? Maybe if she wasn't eating and, and was low weight. But again, like, yeah, I don't actually know the certification of my lactation consultant. Right. And I'm pretty well knowledgeable in this thing. So my my, my feeling after hearing this story was like, from the person side of things, always, always question, like, figure out what the qualifications are of your, of your person giving you advice, mm -hmm. right? What, what, do you have a degree in this? How long you've been doing it? Will you work in tandem with my pediatrician? Like, will you talk with them and like, make sure that they're giving, you know, good sound advice. And on the side of the provider aspect of it, I think as, as, as doctors, we need to be a little bit probably less deferring to lactation consultants and types of things. Like we need to be, it can't just be like send the person to a lactation consultant and not be involved. Like there needs yeah. to be, because there isn't any other oversight happening here, right? So mm. it doesn't mean that you need to like stand behind the lactation consultant and be like, I want to hear every word you say. But I think following up on the, okay, what was the advice that the lactation consultant gave you and who was the lactation consultant and that sort of thing can be really, you know, again, that that that's my takeaway. No, I think that's that's reasonable, and I think it's it's helpful to have anecdotal stories about you know our experiences with these, with you know in, in this realm as well. I think that sort of shows the breadth of of which people experience you know stuff like this. But yeah, it's it's always tricky, and it's always tricky too when when two medical professionals don't agree on something. So then it's like, all right, well, if you're the patient or you're the parent in the middle, you're like, well, who the hell do I listen to? And mm -hmm. then you don't want to piss anybody off. You, you know, like, 
it's 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 tricky. I mean, I think that happens in in our world in in orthopedics too. Like sometimes, I, I can't tell you how many times I've had a discussion with a patient of like, well, I saw this other provider, or sometimes even send a provider in my practice who that person and I didn't have the same recommendation moving forward for a patient. And so whose job is it to argue that out? Is it the patient who doesn't really have the knowledge and expertise? Is it the two providers? Should they just call each other and yell at each other? on the <laughs> You know, and really in the end, I think the answer is that we should be all advocating for the patient and um, using our, our best judgment. And if and but also our our best judgment needs to be checked by uh, governing bodies that maintain our licensure and make sure that we're providing evidence-based, helpful, valid, adequate care. Yeah. When you added the fact that it's a baby and usually this is a newborn situation when yeah. you're a lactation consultant, you're usually not slept. You, if it's your yeah. first child, Very you're vulnerable. worried about literally everything. My bullshit meter is pretty good. I'm a pretty good bullshit meter person. And <laughs> like even I went through a story like this where mine was not huge complications. It wasn't a tongue tie situation. But again, like I totally can see how this would be a big issue. And th this didn't even get into the we, we didn't even talk about the other facet of this in which, you know, practitioners in our world in the United States make more money the more procedures they do. So the right. dentist is rewarded for doing the procedure, not for telling someone they don't need the procedure. Right. And so we'd like to think that that wouldn't affect a good provider from saying like, you don't need it. Um, but I think that that's naive. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> to, to say that that happened. So we've spoken about this before in pieces um, and we are a uh, small preview. We are looking at doing a deeper dive for an yeah. episode and maybe, uh, you know, how do you know if you can trust your provider? How do you know if you can trust your doctor? Um, and, and so maybe something to light a fire under your doctor friends to figure out how we can help our listeners with that. Yeah. Well, I think you coined it as like conceiving of a easy to follow kind of survival guide for the healthcare consumer for the patient, you know, like we talk about red flags all the time, right? Sure. Red flags. If you have a, a certain symptoms, you should go to the emergency room. Well, what are the red flags when I see a provider that I should be like, this is a little bit uncomfortable or maybe I should go get another opinion or things yeah. like that. And understanding that that access is already difficult in a lot of different ways. Accessing even a primary care provider is very difficult right now in a lot of places. Um, so, you know, I think we we would have an understanding going into that discussion, which I'm assuming is probably going to come up in the next few weeks of, you know, being very mindful of like, look, we know this shit is already really hard. But like once you finally get in with a provider or a specialist or whoever the hell you're trying to ask to help you solve a problem, you know, what are things that you can what's your what is your meaningful due diligence that you could do to feel secure in that decision making process so that you feel like you can trust that person and questions to ask. And things that, you know, like, I don't know, even like we enjoy myth busting to some degree of like, like even just advice about like what to ask and what not to ask even in, in an interaction with a provider too. I don't know. I think it'll be fun. I think it'll be a great discussion, but it'll. Yeah. It'll... I mean, there's a baseline level here. Julie, to become a doctor, what did you have to do to be a board certified physician? Oh, geez. I mean. You had to go to four years of medical school. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. You had to take three board examinations. Mm -hmm. You had to pass all three of them. Mm -hmm. You theoretically could have gone to practice at that point, but you did a residency that would have made you then board certified, right? Yeah, well, I don't if you, once you, you sit board for certified. those boards, right. Right, you can't be board certified in a specialty, even if it's primary care, like family medicine, mm -hmm. without doing a residency. So Correct. if somebody's not board certified, they haven't done, and the lowest residency you can do is three years, mm -hmm. right? Fa internal medicine, family medicine. Um, some of these are exponentially longer. Then there's fellowships. Mm -hmm. You did a fellowship, right? Mm -hmm. Fellowships are give you a specialty and get a certificate of added qualification, CAQs. Mm -hmm. And then you have to, and you're doing this this year, I think, right? You have to go for, you have to redo your boards how many years? Yeah, how many every, times? Every 10 years. I think each board um, has their own models, but for the American Board of Family um, Medicine, you and I have to do it every 10 years. Which Right. So- you have to do all this stuff to be a physician and to be certified and to have that just at a baseline level. That is going to remove a lot of the bad actors just at that level. Mm -hmm. And we still know that there are bad actors as physicians. Mm -hmm. But if you lower that bar of entry, which is what we talked about maybe with a lactation consultant, where I, I'm, I don't even know off the top of my head how what certification you have to do to be a lactation consultant. Mm -hmm. But I'm assuming that you could probably just put a shingle up tomorrow mm -hmm. based on the fact that only three states license them. Sure. And so... 
that bar of entry to say I'm an expert in this is it's the same as somebody being like I'm a potty training expert. Yeah. And, and you're like, what are your credentials? Well, I've just I've done it a lot. I've talked with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I've I've I wrote a book on it. Right? right. So I'm an expert. And you're like, yeah, I guess you're kind of an expert, but you're you're not a medical professional. You're not certified. I mean, you haven't done ten years of having people oversight you all these exams to mm-hmm. make sure that you're not causing harm. You haven't taken a Hippocratic oath to say you're not going to harm people. So again, like even within specialties, there's just a baseline level of what do you have to do to get your credentialing? And so you, know, you don't want to trust your personal trainer to tell you, you know, what surgery you should have on your elbow. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. And don't forget too, that even in that 10 year process as well, we're required to maintain continuing medical education and document it as such. Um, and I, yeah, it's hard to know. I mean, I don't know what a lot of these other credentialing bodies, if they exist, um, how rigorous their standards are, but I certainly doesn't sound like they're very rigorous. Yeah, agreed. Which is unfortunate. Certainly. Um, so maybe that's a little small preview of what that next episode's going to be. They're a little back and forth right there. Totes. All right, lighten the mood a little bit for us, Mexico. <laughs> I mean, this isn't terribly light, but it's better than a lot of the shit you brought up. Um, this story I wanted to talk about because I just thought it was fascinating. But the FDA released a statement to ask people to avoid using smartwatches or smart rings to measure your blood glucose levels. Um, Mm. So I know we had a really great talk with Kristen Holmes of Whoop. Um, We're both Whoop users. I enjoy the Whoop. It's very good. Whoop, whoop. Uh, But as far as I know, my Whoop is not trying to tell me my blood glucose levels because it does not have any ways to sense that. Um, I'm not even quite even sure what devices they're referring to, but they seem very scammy. So basically this week, the FDA released a statement urging consumers, patients, caregivers, and healthcare workers to avoid using smartwatches or smart rings that claim to provide accurate blood glucose levels. Devices that don't pierce your skin in any way, you know, the ones that do are like FDA-approved continuous sure. glucose monitors. Um they cannot provide any type of accurate blood glucose level results, and that can be dangerous to those people who rely on this information to be accurate, namely folks with diabetes. Um, right. You know, so just, you know, it was kind of let, uh, a let the buyer beware, and the FDA made a statement of like, look, unless it's an FDA approved device, like a continuous glucose monitor that actually pierces your skin, um, it can't give you accurate results. So please don't rely on it. Um, not to say you can't use smartwatches or smart rings to get meaningful information about different other health facets of your life, but blood glucose is not one of them, so don't do it. Yeah, and I think, I can't remember if, who we had this conversation with, but glucose itself is one of those ones where like most people don't completely understand even what a normal glucose pattern should look like. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, I think there's the the group of people that you talked about, like diabetics, who regularly check their blood sugars for medical reasons and probably mm-hmm. shouldn't be relying on something that isn't FDA approved to do that, as you mentioned. Yeah. But then the people who are probably using a lot of these like rings and apps and stuff are probably also people who just don't have diabetes and they're like, I want to follow my blood sugar to make yeah, sure I'm just eating curious. well yeah. and I'm being healthy. And they'll see this huge spike after they eat something and then they'll find on the internet that like that's bad and so they shouldn't do that. But like that's actually normal and it wasn't that you had bad food and <laughs> it's it, it, like again unless you have somebody who can interpret the results yeah. who actually knows what this like what it should look like it's just data and it's just confusing so now yeah. you're talking about getting inaccurate data right to somebody who doesn't have probably the full capacity to interpret it totally. um so i think i will tell you what my uh, when i got a sleep study uh, what the sleep doctor said to me was I think you have too much data right now. Because oh, my goodness. whoop told me my sleep was crappy. And so I was like, I've always, I've always wondered if I had sleep apnea, so I want to get a sleep study. And he's like, you just should stop looking at your whoop data. And oh, I was like, funny. yeah, I mean, I, you're probably right. And so, Well, I mean, we've talked before, like, you know, when Mickey Fisher was on and we talked about deviated septums and people that aren't don't breathe well through their nose. I mean, I think you have, may have other reasons why your sleep continuity may be affected to some degree. Um, but yeah, interesting. And then, um, oh, and who you were referring to when we were talking about gl- continuous glucose monitors and stuff like that was Greg Dodell, our friend, oh. our endocrinology friend. You know, Everything I always love to call endocrine. back people that have been on the show. 
so that yes. our listeners, if they haven't listened, um, the episode with Greg Dodell was awesome. Somebody was... I will miss during my cleanse of, of Instagram. It's Greg. My... Well, you can, yeah. you can love him just more when you come back with all of his There's... health at every size and um, all of his weight neutral health care. Maybe I can reach posts. out and he'll just text me his reels so yes. that I can just watch his through text message That's instead right. of going or I on. can do that for yeah. you. I will. I, I do. This is how much I love you, Jeremy <laughs> Allen. Yeah. Um, I have one more story. Do you have anything? No, that's that was I had some cool. other ones I toyed around with, but we can leave them for next time. OK. All right. Well, I, I want to finish with um, uh, one more story. So finally, I'd like to honor Black History Month. Uh, we're rounding out February here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to highlight a story from NBC about the lack of black cardiologists. It's a very specific thing looking at cardiologists in general, but I think it brings up some interesting points just overall about um, representation within medicine. Um, the headline is black people have the highest rates of death from heart disease. Could more black cardiologists help? Um, some of the stats that were put out in this, which were interesting, around 60% of black American adults have heart disease and heart disease death rates are highest among black Americans compared to other racial and ethnic groups, according to the American Heart Association. Yet the experience of having a black cardiologist is a rarity. A 2021 report by the Association of American Medical Colleges found that only 4.2% of cardiologists are black. Hmm. An earlier study published in 2019 in JAMA Cardiology had similar Mm -hmm. findings revealing that black doctors make up only 3% of the cardiologist workforce. So not a lot. The same report found that 51% of cardiologists were white and 19% were Asian. Hmm. Um, There is thought that increasing the number of black cardiologists could mean better heart health for black patients. Uh, a quote from the uh, a statement from the American Heart Association in this story said, underrepresented medical professionals are more likely to practice in their communities where cultural sensitivity can create trust and their presence has been shown to improve outcomes. This connection is particularly important among black Americans when it comes to heart health. Mm-hmm. And so with recent surge in DEI initiatives, you would think there would be some optimism. You'd be mm-hmm. saying like, maybe we'll be seeing more in the pipeline. So we've been doing poorly, but maybe it's getting better. But there really actually hasn't been much documented growth here. A 2021 study in the Journal of General Internal Medicine found that the proportion of black doctors in the United States had increased only by four percentage points over the last 120 years. Oh, geez. The study also found that the share of black male doctors remained the same since 1940, wow. and black women make up only 2.8% of the physician workforce, according to a 2021 perspective in The Lancet. So, thoughts, reactions? Yeah, I mean, just representation matters. You know, there's not much else to say other than that. And and uh, I think we can do a lot better to, I don't know, expand diversity, equity, and inclusion so that we can make sure that we're offering really great medical care to people that look like everybody. And um, I think that's, I don't know, I think it's really important and I don't think it's too hard to do. And it's, uh, um, I don't know, something to keep keep our fingers on that pulse as well. Do you have any thoughts on maybe why we're not seeing more black doctors, both from your own anecdotal experience or anything that you've seen? It just seems like, again, like the only way to fix this problem is to have more black doctors. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really loaded question. I'm sure there's a lot of societal problems. Why that's why, you know, that that may not that percentage hasn't changed very much. Um, I think that it to my in my end shows some degree of failure on the part of making medical education accessible to everyone. Um, I mean, I don't know, failure, but like that's a, a need for as as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I think that there's a lot of barriers to all degrees of higher education, cost being one of them. Um, but I mean, maybe a cycle too of like, I mean, no one in my, in my immediate family is a physician. Uh, you do end up hearing a lot of, I mean, you and I interview um, our fellows and I've interviewed residents and stuff before and how many um, CVs and personal statements have you seen of like well my dad or my mom or whoever was a physician and so then I went mm-hmm. into this too like I think that there are I think that that sometimes can show a level of um, I don't know privilege to some degree of like well yeah it makes sense that you you had someone to look up to that look like you because they were your parents or your family member for, exactly right you know access to to volunteer opportunities right. where you could you know boost your cv access to to resources like uh, um test prep and uh resources to you know get into universities because you know somebody or right. whatnot um you know i think 
um, there's probably a root cause analysis here that's probably, you know, there are probably issues at every level here. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, at the, at the, at the lowest level, I lowest meaning like at the earliest level, we need to have more diversity and interest in becoming a doctor. And that usually involves seeing somebody that looks like you. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, again, like a lot of times you see yourself in somebody. I mean, you don't have to look very far to go to women's sports right now Mm -hmm. to see all the girls who are seeing, you know, people like Caitlin Clark do Mm -hmm. what they're doing. And just to say like, I can do that because I'm seeing somebody do that. Right. And when you only have 4% of, you know, doc cardiologists being black, you're just not going to have a lot of people saying, I want to grow up to be a cardiologist as a young black person. Yeah. Just for that factor. And then when you get up to the upper levels, I mean, it's hard to be a medical student and a resident, right? I mean, like it's hard for everybody. You're not slept well. You're studying like crazy. There's a lot of stuff to go on. And I think it's been pretty well documented and it was even quoted in from somebody's own um, experience in this article that, that there's microaggressions and, and, and hidden um, barriers or hidden like um, barriers for people of color. A lot of times black physicians can be held to a higher standard, even though the standard on paper is said to be the same. Yeah. Um, And so I think that it, you know, I don't know what the solution is. You and I are not experts in this field, but I do know that it needs to get better. And I think as people like you and me, the control we have is over our own fellowship program. And over, you know, being at an academic institution and and working with in the boards that we have about saying that this is important. And even just saying it's important is a good first step because then you start to think about how do we how do we prioritize it? Certainly. So there should be more sports medicine doctors who are black. And I don't actually don't know the study or the the data on that, but certainly a lot of the athletes that I treat are black. And I don't know how they feel versus, you know, with me as a white physician versus if they had a black physician. Yeah. Right. And how much trust there could be there. One anecdote where I, I can see this being handled very well um, it, with an organization that you and I have yeah. talked to and worked with before is REACH at Rush, um, at Rush University Medical Center. Um, REACH is their, basically their uh, medical, or like basically they're, they're reaching out to um, people at all levels. I think it even starts in elementary school where they offer opportunities um, to build interest and into building a career in either medicine or in the healthcare fields, um, starting with kids being really young and they have outreach programs and they have internships and they have volunteer opportunities and ways of mentorship, which I think is so important. And for folks, I mean, this is being done in the city of Chicago, which there's a very, you know, diverse populations of folks and they uh, prioritize that. I think they're doing a very, very good job. Um, and sort of guiding the next several generations of people to go into healthcare and maybe be physicians if they want to be, or be some other type of healthcare professional if they want to be. Hopefully, one that has great creden- credentialing. <laughs> but uh, I just wanted to highlight that organization because we've worked with them before, and I love them, and I think they're doing fantastic work. Um, and I just think that that's an organization that's doing it right, and I think they're great. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I feel like an analog here, not for the the specifics, um, but just as on a broad scale, I feel like we hear a lot with policing these days that one of the ways that we can improve our relations with police is by having more representation sure. within the police department from people from those same communities. And I think it's just been, it's very clear that having someone that, you know, looks like you or comes from your culture matters to mm-hmm. to, to many people. And, and, and it's clear that we just lack diversity w- uh, especially when it comes to black representation within the physician workforce. Um, and so mm-hmm. it just, it needs to get better. And yeah. and I, I see stories like this and it encourages me to do what I can, but, but certainly I think, you know, places like NBC putting this out and, and, and showing that it, I hopefully will be helpful too. Certainly. And I think it's great to utilize what, what little influence we have on our, on our sweet little platform here to talk about it because it's important. And it, and if if I'm staying on brand here by uh, constantly referencing people that have been guests on this show, I'm going to reference Deshaun uh, Branch, our one of our favorite yoga instructors who we had on uh, many moons ago. Because uh, here in Mexico, um, I actually did virtual yoga with Deshaun yesterday morning because it was still going at the Garfield Park Conservatory. And she usually starts her practice off with a quote and her quote 
was from, I can't remember exactly who it was, but it was lovely. And it was, um, and she opened it with saying, you know, because it's Black History Month, I wanted to make this quote. And it was from a, a, a Black woman and it was something gorgeous about love and positivity. Um, and she was like, wait a second, Black History Month, every month is Black History Month. And, and we all laughed and it was very sweet. And I just wanted to call out to Sean because I also love her and think she's great. And this happened yesterday. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I, you reminded me one more thought I wanted to put out is that you sure. and I have had conversations recently about this podcast about trying to ensure that we're doing our, our best to in, you know have diversity and opinion both um, from people throughout the country, yeah. but also you know different races and socioeconomic uh, tr uh, statuses. And, and so our experts, we're going to try to make sure that we're doing the best we can. But I will say... It's challenging to to get diversity there too. I mean, when only four percent of the doctors are are black, yeah. it's hard to find people to be on the show. Um, and that's not an excuse. I mean, I no. certainly think that we've reached out, and you certainly also don't want that those people to feel like they're just coming on the show because they're yeah, representing because black people. Yeah, right. exactly. yeah so so it's it, it, I I don't want to minimize that challenge. I think what I really wanted to emphasize is that I think it's important to us. And, and this is with another reminder, you and I had a recent conversation that we want to make sure that that's something that we're, we're paying attention to um, just on the broader scale. So anyhow, I would love to wrap up because Julie's got a very important Mexican dinner to get to um, where she will be wearing flip-flops um, <laughs> and enjoying the sunsets and Don't tell me what to wear or to what to enjoy, Jeremy. I'm mansplaining how to have fun in Mexico for you. I actually need it. <laughs> oh, God. I was just having a conversation with a friend, and they're like, what do you do when you're on vacation? I was like, well, right now I'm decompressing by being on my phone <laughs> on my balcony while there's, like, dance contests happening on the beach in front of me. And I'm like... And then I'm going to report record a podcast. Then I figured I'd answer a few emails. And, it's fine. Um, I've done a pretty good job at unplugging, so it's yes. it's, it's been worth it. I will say, just like everything in the world, Julie, vacation takes practice. The more you do it, the better you get at it. It's true. And this is the first in a while. So just, you know, it's like swim lessons. Just get back in the water and keep trying. That so I look forward to uh, us recording maybe throughout the, the world because then we'd be world explorers and, and, po and podcast recorders. So um, one last reminder to you listening, your doctorfriendspodcast.com. Please put in your email address. As I mentioned, you're getting this thing once a month. We think it has great information in it. Plus, we'll also give you updates on us. And, and, and it's also got the ability. Our website's awesome now. It has the ability to leave us a voice message. If you want a question mm -hmm. answered, you can let us know. If you have a story you come across that you think we should cover, like leave it in the, uh, you just click the button. Uh, our doc line is yep. no longer. You can just click a button and record Easier. it. You can send us an email uh, and the email address is on there. Lots of different ways to get a hold of us. So sign up for the email. I was going to say, you can DM me on, or DM us. It's really on Instagram. Yeah. And I'm really good at responding to that, even when I'm on vacation. Yeah. You don't actually have to whisper that. I just told people I'm cleansing social media. So yes, Julie is behind uh, the it's your me. underscore doctor Hi. friends at, on Instagram. So, mm -hmm. but uh, uh, yeah, please subscribe to the uh, Pulse Check. Um, and you, that'll be coming out, I think, this upcoming week with some of these great uh, headlines. Julie, this was fun. Thank you for sending some sunlight to us. Certainly. We'll see everybody next week for a new episode. Listen to your doctor friends. <laughs> the amazing music is credited to Skillcell with Pixabay licensure. The podcast is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast should not be taken as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Please consult a medical professional for any medical issues that you may be having. The contents of this podcast are the opinions of the hosts only and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or affiliations. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall Dr. Julie Bruni or Dr. Jeremy Allen or any guest to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs>